and welcome to another conversation in Anthropology at Deakin, everyone's favourite podcast about life, the universe and anthropology. Brought to you with support from the Faculty of Arts and Education at Deakin University and with a friendly wave from the American Anthropological Association. I'm Timothy Neal, Senior Research Fellow at the Alfred Deakin Institute for Citizenship and Globalization, and as usual, I'm joined by the incomparable and indefatigable David Border-Giles, a lecturer in anthropology at Deakin University. In this episode, we have a departure from our usual format, with me serving as our roving correspondent in the field. At the beginning of April, I headed to the East Coast of the United States of America for a conference and a few talks, taking my trusty Zoom recorder with me in case I managed to corner some fellow travelers in the pursuit of anthropological knowledge for a chat. Happily, before my trip was brought to an early end by a case of the flu, I managed to tape two such conversations. The first conversation is with Rosalind Fredericks, who is Associate Professor of Geography and Development Studies at New York University. Her research and writing interests are centred on development, urbanism and political ecology in Africa. With a PhD in geography, she's focused her research on urban citizenship and infrastructure in contemporary Dakar, Senegal, where she has conducted ethnographic research on labour and youth movements. So she's the co-editor of The Arts of Citizenship in African Cities, Infrastructures and Spaces of Belonging, published in 2014 by Palgrave, and Garbage Citizenship, Vital Infrastructures of Labour in Dakar, Senegal, published recently by Duke University Press. Tim caught Rosalind at the American Association of Geographers 2019 annual meeting in Washington, D.C., a swarming, sprawling conference of over 6,000 attendees. Tim tells me it was enormous and at times frenetic, and he and Rosalind had to hunt for a reasonably quiet corner to have a few words about her research and her new book, which I was deeply grateful for. I hadn't come across her book yet, and it's right up my alley. So thanks for that, Tim. Oh, man, you would have loved it. There was so much talk of waste. All the waste. Waste to the left of me, waste to the right. (laughs) And global cities and food waste and labour, the labour of waste. I I put on my David ears and I I listened with (laughs) with intense interest. Uh, Listeners at home, David ears are bigger than Tim ears. The second conversation is with Anand Pandian, an Associate Professor of Anthropology at Johns Hopkins University. Anand has a resume that's very difficult to summarise, but basically he's written a lot, he's edited several books, and he's organised some seriously big conversations of his own about the state of anthropology and its future. He is the author of Crooked Storks, Cultivating Virtue in South India, published by Duke University Press in 2009, which we discuss in the interview, amongst several other ethnographic books. And he has a new book coming out later this year titled A Possible Anthropology, Methods for Uneasy Times, which we also get to. As we explore in our conversation, he's been a contributor to discussions in anthropology about the future of conferences. And in 2018, he chaired the group behind the Society of Cultural Anthropology's biennial conference, with an international virtual conference called Displacements. Anand and I have kind of been circling each other for a couple of years through shared interests and friends, so it's great to finally meet him in person. We spoke in his office at Johns Hopkins University, which I have to say was a trip, not only because it's this beautiful red brick campus, manicured lawns, all of that, but also because in the actual department you have photos of these big figures of the field, Talal Assad, Emily Martin, Michelle Rolfe Triot, all of whom taught there. I was visiting to take part in a panel with Zoe Todd and Candace Callison, which is a whole different story, and there was actually a sit-in happening on campus to protest, first, the university's proposal to install an armed police force, and second, the university's recently revealed relationships with Immigration and Customs Enforcement, or ICE. And all of this put maybe a different tenor on Anand and my conversation, which really bent towards imagining anthropology's future and how it might be different to its institutional past. I found myself listening and just thinking the word preach all through that particular (laughs) conversation. I was really excited to hear how he is imagining anthropology and the kinds of conversations that seems like he's making possible. Anand is one of these uh, intensely productive uh, people Mm. who just never seems to stop writing, stop reading, stop contributing. Mm. If you are on Twitter, I recommend following him because he's often 
chipping in on some of the big debates that are happening right now around harassment, around representation, so the uh, annual conferences, how they have a, a large carbon footprint, but also they're not especially welcoming spaces for our interlocutors uh, who maybe want to start to be present, be in the room for these for these discussions. You're here. You're here. Without further ado, then. So, Rosalind, this is a podcast about anthropology, mm-hmm. and you're explicitly a geographer, mm-hmm. though one whose methods are clearly ethnographic. Mm-hmm. So perhaps a good place to start would be to tell us a little bit about how you came to ethnography as a method. Well, I mean, I hail from a very ethnographic tradition within geography, coming out of the Berkeley School of Cultural Geography. Um, so ethnography was always, you know, sort of going to be my method and always was what was of interest to me in geography and in, in Senegal. That's always what I wanted to be doing. So I was trained very much by Jill Hart and Michael Watts, who do, you know, deep-sighted ethnography. And that's not to say that I don't think geographers do ethnography differently than anthropologists. I don't think that's always the case. It would be difficult to make firm statements about what the difference might be, but I I certainly paid quite a lot of attention to space, spatial practice, sort of classic preoccupations um, of geographers, maybe more than classically of of anthropologists. Was there Um, any point where you had to make a choice? you know, between between disciplines? Because I know here in the States, yeah. disciplinary boundaries are quite strong and they make mm-hmm. a big difference, especially yeah. when you're in a kind of postgraduate situation. Right. I haven't had to make that because I am in an interdisciplinary school. Um, I am actually the only card-carrying geographer in my college at NYU, the Gallatin School. But, you know, so I end up being a sort of representative more of the social sciences in a school that has that is dominated by humanities scholars. And my closest interlocutors within Gallatin are anthropologists, and I'm married to an anthropologist. You know, there are many conversations that I am part can't of. Can't get away in, from in anthropology. Can't get away from them. So your research centers on the city of Dakar in Senegal, which seems from the outside like a place of quite recent international interest in terms of kind of its development potential. Uh, it's a resource economy, but one that has a growing tourist and hospitality sector. So how has Dakar changed over the time that you've been going there? Because yeah. you've been going there quite a long time. Yeah. I've been doing research in Dakar since 2002. So I have seen some pretty massive transformations. Obviously, I'm spending most of that time in the capital city um, and so can speak mostly to the capital city transformations and my awareness of how that connects to the rest of the country. Um, So it's been a pretty radical transformation. I would say some of the key things that you observe are the incredible verticality of the city. So it's growing up instead of, I mean, it certainly is sprawling outward as well. But I think that's a really interesting dynamic that we see all over the global south, but up more and more in African cities um, is an increasing verticality, which really reshapes the way the city works, the way that sociality takes form in the city, all sorts of sort of urban questions. So I've seen that sort of change. You also see just this incredible infusion of money in the city that is absolutely concentrated at the top. So this incredible disparity between the rich and the poor, which I think each and every year gets worse and more perceivable as manifested in many BMWs on the road at the same time as the vast majority of communities in Dakar actually not advancing and not sort of doing any better in terms of their infrastructure. But I think overall what we've seen is just in that period a really huge transformation in the urban infrastructure of the city. So lots and lots of aid money has been leveraged, um, aid money from the classic sources of the Bretton Woods institutions, but even more now from South-South funding sources, like from um, loans from the Arab world and from um, Asian and even Latin American investors that are mainly going towards fairly elite infrastructures like toll roads, but also, you know, sanitation improvements and that sort of thing. Um, So I've seen pretty massive transformations in the city. I wouldn't say that I've seen massive transformations in the quality of life of ordinary Dakar Wa, which is why those sorts of kind of infrastructural changes are so shocking, maybe disappointing to ordinary Dakar Wa because they feel like they're sort of not going anywhere. And in fact, life, I think, for them has gotten harder because the city's getting more and more expensive and yet 
you know, they're not doing any better. And you mentioned sort of these new, I mean, I, I wouldn't, you know, there haven't been any, any huge windfalls in terms of finding big natural resource deposits, which maybe is a blessing. But what, what we do see is the failure, the increasing failure of the old sectors of the economy, namely agriculture centered on the peanut crop and fishing, which is leading people to this mass rural exodus into this macrocephalic capital, into the capital city, but people who have no job prospects. So, you know, that's kind of a more dire picture than the fancy roads and the fancy vehicles would, would paint. You have a new book out, which I'm sure you're now very familiar with talking about, called uh, Garbage Citizenship, Vital Infrastructures of Labor in Dakar, Senegal. And from one point of view, it's a book about infrastructure. And from another point of view, it's a book about waste. But I've also read it, some people see it as a book about urban citizenship. So how do you explain it to new readers and new Mm -hmm. audiences? I think it's all three. Um, The idea is telling... A story, and it is a historical story, but that comes up to the present about a shifting landscape of citizenship in the city through the lens of, through the case of transformations in the infrastructural sector of waste management. And so it is infused with waste in the sense that I'm looking very closely at waste. Um, not just as the matter being organized by the infrastructure that I'm looking at, but also as a material force that does shape social movements around the sector, etc. But I'm also looking very deeply at infrastructure and really provoking, aiming to provoke a um, sort of broader consideration of what we think of as infrastructure. I mean, I would say the main sort of goal of the book is to kind of, as an experiment, as a provocation, as an invocation for new thinking and, you know, new discussions around this, is to explode conventional ideas of infrastructure. And I'm, of course, not alone here. There's a burgeoning new field of critical infrastructure studies that are aiming to do this through really thinking about, in this one case, the material the affective and the social parts or elements of the assemblage that one could consider the waste infrastructure in Dakar and really fleshing those out with probably the social being the most important, thinking about how labor is infrastructural and all of the many, many implications of that. Because as a PhD student, what was your initial point of interest? Mm-hmm. What was the hook for you that yeah. got you into these waste yep. fields? Well, I'll never forget, you know, I wrote my proposal and got some funding and went over there for the first um, chunk of the research as a doctoral student. And it was looking very much not at the municipal um, trash collection sector. It was on uh, waste and sanitation, but on some other questions that are not interesting anymore. Um, And when I was there, I had a meeting that day with my advisor, Mamadou Jouf, who I then went off to do a, a postdoc with and have co-edited a couple of books with, who is leading historian of Senegal and inspiration in many respects. Um, and I had a, a meeting with him to talk about my research. And just that morning, there was a huge trash revolt where whole neighborhoods in Dakar externalized their rotting garbage that had not been collected by the municipal trash workers because the municipal trash workers on strike. And so these neighborhoods, mostly women and young people, threw the trash into the street in an act of protest and blocked the artery. So I was late to this meeting because I couldn't get there because of the garbage in the street. And staring I you in the face. staring me in the face and, and, you know, stinking and rotting and, you know, catching everyone's attention. And I get to the meeting and I still was trying to insist on talking about my other project with Mamadou. And he said, you're the luckiest grad student in the world. There's actually really important stuff happening under your nose. Follow the garbage. And so that's when I really shifted to try to understand and explain why garbage was literally erupting into the public sphere and that led to this you know much more historical inquiry into the trash workers movement and its origins in one of the most important social movements in Senegal called Set Setal and it all kind of went from there. 
Well, we're at uh, the AAG, and there seems to be a lot of waste scholarship around right mm. now. And it's made it's put in my mind that you know waste is a site of political contestation in a lot of places at this point. In Australia, we have a lot of big questions around our recycling and, and the submerged economies around recycling. There have been trash revolts in New York, Naples, mm. Beirut. So I was wondering, thinking with a historical mm -hmm. perspective, as you were just saying, is waste a new topic of political contest in Senegal? I mean, in Senegal, I think it has been a topic of contestation probably going back to the 60s, maybe farther. It would be great to do an actual kind of archival research project on that. I mean, certainly farther in the sense that um, broader discourses of contamination and disease were at the heart of massive urban transformations around the bubonic plague in the 18-teens, etc., as they were in South Africa. The subject of Swanson's famous piece, um, The Sanitation Syndrome. Um, so we had similar dynamics in Senegal, certainly organizing the urban fabric socially and physically and geographically around metaphors of contamination that were rooted in trash on some level. But I would say the municipal trash sector hasn't been a huge sort of political factor until the 80s, which is the story that I'm telling, sort of in the wake of structural adjustment, when that particular municipal budget got squeezed, as every other budget got squeezed, with these um, resounding consequences for the laborers, the urban laborers, a large sector in terms of urban labor with about 2,000 employees. But I certainly would say that beyond Senegal, that there is a field congealing around the study of waste called discard studies that I'm a part of in New York. I would say that the study of waste is, is really becoming more and more important and coming to the fore in geography and anthropology in a broader range of fields, including literary studies, etc. And that's thinking about waste in the broadest terms, not just in terms of garbage and waste management and sanitation, but also disposability articulations of objection, etc. And that this is becoming a big topic for a lot of reasons. Maybe, I mean, certainly in part because of the insistent materiality of waste that makes it an important topic to consider within this realm of focus on new materialisms and new materiality. It is an object that screams of its force, you know, so it's hard to avoid the force of its kind of internal decomposition processes and the metaphors that, you know, congeal around waste. or It's, it's sensorily mm -hmm. rich. It's exactly. Mm -hmm. yeah. It is a key language of power because of that, you know, going back to Mary Douglas. Um, so I think a lot of people are starting to focus on it. Yeah, you, you write about a neoliberal mode of governing through disposability. Mm -hmm. yeah. So for people who maybe mm -hmm. don't track in these kinds of mm -hmm. critical terms, what do you mean by right. governing through disposability? Yeah. Well, I mean, in a very empirical sense, what I'm tracking here is the conundrum of the Senegalese state squeezed by structural adjustment, rendered impotent on some level, and with these emaciated budgets, having to figure out who benefits and who doesn't from the fruits of the city, right? And so part of it is a very kind of pragmatic calculation on the part of urban politicians that I, you know, had the opportunity to interview, et cetera, and bureaucrats of what to fund and what not to fund in the city when your budget is taken away from you. And that precipitates a sort of mode of governing through disposability, which literally means that certain parts of the city are left to rot, rust, and crumble, while other parts of the city are spiffed up and made to look, you know, modern and clean and globally relevant. So part of that is about a kind of competition of the city on a global stage that I think Dakar is participating in. And this is one of the changes I have seen in the last, you know, almost 20 years that I've been there, is that Dakar is thinking about itself as a global stage, thinking about itself in the eyes of a, a global viewership and, and tourist, you know, trade, etc., and trying to perform a certain kind of urbanity, a certain kind of modernity that means that this disparity between the rich and the poor gets etched through certain areas being rendered disposable and certain areas being rendered not disposable. That's a kind of geographical governing through disposability. But the other sense of governing through disposability, which is really at the crux of the book, is the way that certain labor comes to be valued and other labor comes to be disposed of 
or squeezed, rendered, um, disposable. Um, and what I look at and trace in, in the book is very much how the actual workforce in this one municipal sector, as it's getting transformed in the wake of structural adjustment, gets relied upon to pick up the slack of, in, you know, induced by structural adjustment and induced austerity, that the absence of investment into infrastructure as the classic definition of infrastructure that we think of, the trucks, the roads, you know, the, the material elements of infrastructure, that lack of investment gets devolved onto laboring bodies. And so bodies are basically required to pick up the slack under conditions of austerity and individual people end up kind of buttressing a sort of ailing infrastructure through their literal, you know, hands and, and muscles and, and with incredible bodily burden. So part of looking at the devolution of infrastructure onto labor in this context, and this is certainly happening all across sub-Saharan Africa and Global South and elsewhere in the context of splintering urbanism and fragmented infrastructural systems, that bodies get called upon to, as, as sort of, you know, formal forms of bricolage, that this is a municipal sector where people are being required to become bricoleurs, who basically fasten their bodies to these infrastructural systems in ways that can be incredibly um, onerous and damaging. Well, yeah, yeah and uh, I'd like to get to yesterday's mm-hmm. presentation, yeah. which was about your, uh, your new project. Mm-hmm. Always exciting to talk about mm-hmm. a new project. You mentioned yesterday these infrastructures kind of press on the flesh, and I mm-hmm. thought that was a really rich yeah. image. You know, that people's hands are kind of restructured or, you know, right. r- changed uh, mm-hmm. in their metabolism. Mm-hmm. Their, their whole body is changed mm-hmm. by their how they're exposed to these infrastructures. Right. Mm-hmm. So let's talk a little bit about this new project. It's looking at informal recycling labor uh, that the city's done. And you spoke about how this is a space and there are potentially others like it. They're actually quite diverse in terms of the material economies that are there. It's not just one type of labor mm-hmm. or one type of recycling. Uh, or one type of exposure. Yeah. So I was wondering if you could talk about, like, how is it a kind of space of diversity, yeah. diverse mm-hmm. labor and diverse exposure? Absolutely. Um, so this is sort of the sequel to the book, in a way. Um, Waste two. <laughs> exactly. Uh, for those who were waiting with bated breath. If the first book was technically about the, quote, formal sector or the municipal sector of those hired and paid to be garbage workers, this is about this more invisible, informal group of laborers at the dump who take over after the trucks dump the garbage out out there. It's an an old dump. It's been there since 1968. It is one of the biggest and oldest open-air dumps in sub-Saharan Africa and probably in the world. And I am looking at the army of pickers or reclaimers that have developed these incredibly intricate systems of recycling that divert an enormous amount of what goes to this dump called Mbubis towards recycling, towards, you know, they revalue it into new uses, new niches. We don't have an estimate, but I would guess to say that it's got to be upwards of 80% diversion rate or something like that, 80% recycling rate. So there's about two, maybe 3,000 people who work on the dump and a much, much bigger group of people who are then connected to those economies of recycling that stretch across the country, across the region, and all the way to Asia and the Middle East in terms of these recycling networks. So what I'm looking at is the this community of pickers trying to understand how, you know, the kinds of networks that they have set up and how they, their forms of expertise, material expertise, as they have set up these intense recycling networks. But in the face of what will be a massive transformation as the state is about to upgrade the dump. So it's seen as a progressive policy because the state tried to close the dump, which has kind of been the classic reaction of a kind of modernist infrastructural ideal that we see implemented in cities all across the global south. But that was rejected by a number of Dakarwa, namely the pickers, but also a NIMBY protest at the site that the new landfill was going to be located, where they sabotaged that by the residents there, made it a no-go for the state to actually just close the dump. So now they're going to keep it open and valorize it. So what does that mean? That's a really interesting proposition to valorize something that is absolutely messy, 
informal and unlined in the language of solid waste management. You know, they can't line it like they would a formal sanitary landfill. There's no way to completely remediate it. It is polluted, contaminated. It is, you know, exceeding its boundaries and has been for 50 years. So what I'm trying to do is both sort of valorize in my own way the kinds of networks that are already existing on the dump to recognize them as valuable recycling networks and to recognize the kind of bricolage, again, salvage bricolage labor that recyclers of all different varieties at the dump are, are doing to give value to what has you know, been cast off, the waste, but also to treat it as a form of legitimate expertise, but then to watch and observe, and I will be playing on some level an advocacy role here, how that gets transformed. And so part of that is recognizing the incredible diversity, to go back to your original question, of the kinds of niches that exist on the dump. It's an incredibly decentralized recycling system that has grown up very organically. Some of it is more centralized than others in that, you know, probably the biggest operation on the dump is run by a picker who has been there since the beginning. He's one of the oldest members of the pickers community who has built a sort of factory on the dump where plastics are processed. And he actually has hired, and they're day laborers, but around 70 employees who cut up the plastic that then gets processed and, and sent away, sold to different companies that do the actual recycling work. Um, so there's that sort of form. And then there's much smaller, much more sort of vulnerable niches, one of which that I was focusing on in my paper yesterday is the food waste niche, which is much less sort of capitalized. There's no structure here. And the food... It's kind of the least glamorous. Exactly. And the most stigmatized because the food waste is reclaimed and that's under incredibly onerous labor conditions because you can imagine that, you know, collecting the food waste that is distributed in the household waste of the city is quite a hard job to do and you have to pick through everything else to get to it. So it's exclusively done by women, and the vast majority of the women who do this are actually Christian women from the southern region of Senegal. Senegal is a majority Muslim country, and so these are a minority group that developed the monopoly on this niche because they collect the food waste to feed to pigs that are raised near the dump, or even some of them, some of them are right on the edge of the dump, for pork for export. So then a connection to the wider political economy of how Dakar is being placed into international circuits of exchange. This pork is mostly then being exported to hotels that are selling it to mostly non-Muslim visitors to Dakar from France and, you know, Europe, etc. So when these products, you know, uh, these commodities re-enter commodity chains, like soap you mentioned, mm-hmm. textiles, and, and, and pigs, yeah. are they marked in any way by their origin in the dump? Right. Or, are they, or do they leave kind of cleaned of that yeah. stigma? I think there's a real effort to sanitize them of that um, because the dump is incredibly, incredibly negatively viewed, as are the workers there. It is incre- an incredibly stigmatized space and labor. So in each of these niches, there are ways that each of these products are rendered sort of anonymous, right? I know that with the textiles and the shoes that are recuperated at the dump, the traders do as much as they can to get it as far from the dump as possible so that nobody knows that stuff was thrown away. So they're very intentionally trying to distance it from the dump because that would be negatively, very, very negatively viewed. And so they sell in far. I talked to one trader who says he actually mostly sells in Guinea because then they're never going to know that these products came from Bubis, the dump. If they were to sell near the dump, then people might intimate that this came from the dump. Food waste, I think, uh, you know, again, because it's being transformed into the pigs and then the pork. Yeah, there is, really. You know, so no one no one can know where this stuff came from. That has become politicized a bit more in the past, not with pork that I'm aware of, although there have been studies to show that the pork does have elevated levels of heavy metals, et cetera, that it is contaminated in a biochemical sense um, to a degree. But there was a big controversy a few years ago where eggs that were being 
raised in poultry farms right around the dump were found to have very high levels of mercury. And so some of those poultry farms were shut down. So it has become something on the radar of the Dakarwa that there is farming that is done in the interstices of, I mean, there are literally goats and cows that are grazed on top of the dump, but also right on the edge of the dump where these animals and these farms are fed with water that is directly pumped out of wells that is clearly contaminated with leachate from the dump. So it is a major public health problem. The issue is that those public health problems are often used as a justification to delegitimize recycling labor, to delegitimize the recycling networks that have been set up on the dump. So there is a real tension there. Yeah, as you were signaling yesterday, you know, the food niche is the most stigmatized, but it's also a space of hope and relative autonomy mm-hmm. for mm-hmm. these marginalized people. Mm-hmm. So I could see that they would be yeah. the first people to be potentially, uh, you know, criminalized and eliminated in this in this reformation. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So I was wondering, is that where you see your kind of role for advocacy to kind of point out that value? It is. I generally think that the most vulnerable group of people on the dump faced with this upgrade, and the upgrade is framed by the World Bank and the other funders and the state as a progressive you know, alternative to closing the dump. Um, and s- some rubbish. Yes. Uh, yeah, exactly. Um, but I do think that certain groups will be more vulnerable than others, and in particular the food waste reclamation niche is the most vulnerable, partly because that group of women is not incorporated into the Pickers Association, which is a very sort of savvy, mobile activist group present on the dump to defend the rights of pickers. They are not a part of that at all. They're not even legible within that institution. So they don't have a form of contestation. I mean, they don't have an institutional sort of format for that. They are quite disorganized. They're also ill-informed of what is going to happen. Many women don't even know about the upgrade that is to come. So that certainly places me in absolutely an ethical kind of conundrum of a researcher who is privy to all of this information. I'm in conversation with the World Bank, with the state, and with these pickers who are in many instances, not in the know about what is going to happen to their jobs. So I am trying to figure out how to devise an ethical methodology here and have gotten involved with an NGO called Wiego, which is an NGO that is probably the best-known NGO globally that does work defending waste pickers. So they have a lot of institutional wisdom and knowledge and history of advocacy in defending waste pickers around the world. I mean, many of these stories are in Asia and in Latin America, previous stories of waste pickers demanding their rights and demanding not to be left behind in these infrastructural upgrades. So I'm working very closely with Wiego's advocacy efforts. I'm also considering making a film, which would be totally new territory with me. I've paired up with a Senegalese filmmaker, and we have proposed a film. It would be sort of an autoethnography to allow the pickers to sort of tell their own story, to tell their own sort of life histories faced with these transformations in a way that could be a platform, a very visible platform to reach a different audience. I certainly am confronting the limits of what publishing and kind of classical realms like academic articles and even the book that will be out in many years, you know, beyond when this stuff is going to actually be politically relevant confronting the ethics of what it means to have that only be my outlet and so looking for other outlets is there any is there any way in which doing greater publicity of these economies though makes them vulnerable i mean that's always possible and that certainly is a worry i think certainly when it comes to valuing and trying to kind of quantitatively value what the size of these economies are, how much money we're talking about, how much people are making on the dump, that there could be a real risk that that informs these state processes of, I mean, it's basically a land grab. One could consider the valorization and the upgrade of the dump in a way as a grabbing of what the pickers describe as a commons. They describe it as an urban commons that where they have created the value of these recycling networks. They have built them up over 50 years and that the state is coming in and grabbing potentially not just the land that this dump is on, but the value of that land and the value of that resource. The state, of course, says this is, this is state land and this is state garbage. So there's a, there's a real disjuncture there of how that realm 
is perceived, but I'm certainly wary of doing anything that will make it easier for the state to grab that value or perceive that value. Or So a lot of my work has really been about valorizing labor, valorizing the very labor-intensive work of these 25, you know, 100 people on the dump, rather than really focusing on the sort of like money that they're, you know, transforming. I have one last question, which is changing tack slightly. So a large part of our audience are postgraduate students and, and the postgraduate curious. And here we are at uh, AAG, a very large um, disciplinary conference. Do you have any tips for how to negotiate this, uh, you know, Leviathan conferences like these? <laughs> um, well, I have a few students here this time. It's the first time, I, I believe, three or four of them, it's their first time at the AAGs. And so the advice that I've been giving them is go to the most exciting stuff. It may be completely outside of your realm of usual interest. So let's say I'm a discard studies scholar who usually studies waste. It means don't just go to the waste panels. It means go to a range of things. And in fact, you'll probably be provoked to think in all sorts of new directions if you go to a range of panels. Um, I also think it's important to be able to kind of pop in and out and really be a generalist and see a lot of different kinds of things here. But it's a real resource. I mean, there's a, a lot that is going on here. And I would say, try it out. If you've never been to one of these conferences, you know, go to your first one, you'll get overwhelmed and exhausted. But it's, it's certainly worth it to at least see what's happening in the discipline or across the discipline. Well, thank you very much for your time today, Rosalind. Leave it thank there. you. So, Anand, uh, thank you for hanging out with me today. Absolutely. A thing we like to do is just to start with a question about how do you get into this world of anthropology? How did you come to be an anthropologist? Well, believe it or not, it was completely by accident. I suppose that is probably often the case when it comes anthropologists. In my case, I didn't take a single anthropology class as an undergraduate student. I was actually interested in environmental studies and development work, but because I was interested in environmental problems and in development work, I wound up doing fieldwork-related things that I didn't know to call anthropology. I didn't know that they were related to something like ethnography, but I sort of wound up doing that almost without realizing it. One thing that was quite important for me and in some ways quite transformative was a semester abroad that I did leaving my college. I went to a small liberal arts college in New England and I spent a semester in rural Costa Rica studying sustainable development and wound up spending several months with farmers and with agricultural laborers and I remember quite distinctly having the realization feeling it important enough to note it down in a journal that I have rural people in my own background given that my family is from South India and I knew nothing about them mm -hmm. so uh, after college I wound up going and doing uh, volunteer work in rural South India and applying to go to graduate school from a village in rural South India where I was doing environment and development work, winding up at UC Berkeley again in a PhD program in environmental studies, but taking classes in geography, mm -hmm. taking classes in sociology, and also taking classes in anthropology, and essentially just sort of gradually falling deeper and deeper into the anthropological conversations on campus and eventually transferring into that department at UC Berkeley, which is ultimately where I got my PhD. Right, so there was a bit of a, what, there was a lure there around anthropology? Yeah, and in some ways it, it's actually kind of mysterious to me, because even beyond what I've just said, if I think back to what I was doing as an undergraduate, it was also unusual in other ways as well, proto-anthropological, if you will. For example, there was an English class that I took on democracy and media in the United States, and we had to do a term project. But instead of writing about these things, I would go down to the mall at the bottom of the hill near the college and hang out at this arcade trying to talk to people about their experience of the arcade. Right. It wasn't that we were directed to do anything of that kind, mm -hmm. but I wound up just doing it on my own. There was a political science class that I took on social movements. And again, I had to write about a social movement. But instead of 
picking one that I could read about yes, and reflect on, I wound up writing about a kind of field project I was doing in a town nearby where we were doing volunteer work with a local community organization. Mm-hmm. So there was already this strange way that really unexpectedly and in some ways in a manner that I was not only not required to do, but perhaps even expected not to do, I wound up doing ethnographic work uh, without realizing it. And so, yeah, there was some lure to Mm -hmm. speaking with people, to getting a more embodied, sensory, immersive exposure to what questions and problems might look like from the standpoint of lived experience Mm -hmm. that I'd really been drawn to without having a name for it. There's something there that's curious about where we intuit truth is that tells us where we go. Like your story reminds me of a very similar story that we heard from Akhil Gupta. Hmm. Who was an engineer. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Started similarly out in uh, these development projects and just liked talking to people. Right. That was the thing. That was where he thought the truth of the situation mm-hmm. was. Not mm-hmm. in the soil or in the, what the plants were doing, mm-hmm. but mm-hmm. You know, the human element. I was always drawn to theory as well, to theoretical writing. Nietzsche was really important for me as a writer, as a philosopher, when I was an undergraduate, Foucault became important, Deleuze became important. There were certain strands of mm-hmm. theorizing and philosophizing that were quite important for me in that period and afterward in and through graduate school. But I think even the people that I was drawn to theoretically or philosophically were people who were interested in the sensory, affective, embodied dimensions of knowledge or truth and what it might take, for example, to access those dimensions through a certain, not only through a certain kind of reading or writing, but also through a certain way of being in the world. So Mm -hmm. when Foucault talks about an experience book as something that rests the subject from itself, or when Nietzsche talks about philosophizing by walking, uh, or when Deleuze writes about, uh, about affect and sensation as modes of being into which one can enter, uh, that, that is to say ways of, of thinking of thought itself as a mode of encounter in the world. I think what appealed to me about anthropology was the possibility of a certain kind of proximity between a more located form of theorizing on the one hand and the possibility of doing so in the company of others, both other people that one could talk to and interact Mm -hmm. with, but also those environments that you found yourself in in the company of those other people, the way that they responded to those environments, the way that you could enter into that mode of response yourself. Which, which brings us to something I want to talk about, your book, Crooked Stalks, which really line, aligns with what you're saying there around the lives of people in the landscape and how the landscape cultivates the people who are cultivating it. Mm. So I was wondering uh, if you could talk a little bit about that project, I guess, and when you started to realize that there was this double action of cultivation. That was a really interesting process for me to arrive at that particular problem. As with so much in anthropology, that book that I wound up writing, the dissertation out of which that book grew, both of these things, again, were accidents. Mm-hmm. I had funding to do a different kind of project. Okay, what kind of project was you funding for? It was, again, to do work in rural India, but I was interested in a problem that I encountered essentially doing volunteer work in rural South India before I went to graduate school. It was a time in the mid-1990s when these vast tracts of drylands in the plains on the edge of the mountains were being bought up by companies and turned into teak plantations. And and there was this notion of uh, allowing people to invest in teak as a way of investing in their children's futures. So even in that and that development, which rose and fell very quickly and became known as the sort of great plantation bubble, there was this 
crossover between the cultivation of these trees and the landscape and a notion of cultivating one's family and, and one's kin by affording them a kind of relationship to natural growth. So that was there and that was what I intended to do, but I found that by the time I got back to India to do my field work, there was really not very much scope to explore that as a problem, given the, the sort of flash-in-the-pan nature of those developments. The, the bubble had kind of burst. The bubble, not only had the bubble burst, but it had burst so long ago by the time I came back mm-hmm. that people really weren't interested. They'd kind of moved on. They'd lost their money. And it just didn't seem plausible as a project. And I wound up doing this work with a community of people who are classified as criminal by nature in colonial South India and essentially taught to become good citizens by becoming good farmers. And I became interested in that relationship between agrarian cultivation, moral self-cultivation, not only from the standpoint of those colonial interventions, which were quite violent and invasive, but also the way that they brought back into focus more long-standing legacies having to do with long-standing legacies in South Indian moral tradition that took the cultivator as the embodiment of a more cultivated mode of ethical being, mm-hmm. which one finds uh, adduced in South Indian literary traditions and philosophical traditions and religious traditions of various kinds. But to get most specifically to your question, I first became aware of that double sense of cultivation as both moral and material, or say worldly and interior. In my reading of some of these South Indian texts before I went to do that fieldwork, and in realizing that these themes that one could find in the history of Western ideas around nature, that one finds expressed so powerfully and beautifully and interestingly in a book like Raymond Williams' The Country and the City, were also found in a slightly different way in some of these South Indian texts. So I remember quite distinctly an 18th century Tamil text from a genre of dramatical, dramaturgical productions that featured uh, rural folks as their protagonists, the Pallu literature. There's a, a, a text called the Mukudal Pallu that had all of these passages that described the way in which these protagonists were going to literally cultivate each other mm-hmm. uh, by forcing them to cultivate the land. And there was this peculiar kind of crossover between what I became quite aware of in my readings in Western ideas around nature and culture and what appeared to be a kind of analogous set of traditions and potentials and promises in this Indian register. And I became really interested in in what it might mean to think between those different traditions, which is what I wound up doing in that book. Yeah, I mean, there's all kinds of strands there that I wanna wanna chase, but I'm gonna, (laughs) might leave them for now. Because the thing that uh, I wanted to link it to was how your recent work has been much more about the the writing of anthropology. Mm-hmm. Let's talk first about writing. Why uh, has this, do you think, or when did this become something that you thought, I really want to push this form, and what are the issues for you with kind of anthropological form yeah. that you want to push against? It's a great question. If one takes a topic like culture and cultivation, or the ways in which our ideas of culture in anthropology and more generally are tied up with ideas of cultivation and cultivatedness. One might ask the question, what relationship do we assume with regard to those ideas as anthropologists? Are these things to be taken solely as objects of understanding and analysis, or in a sense, part of the methodological toolkit with which we work? As a scholarly discipline, among other scholarly disciplines, we inherit certain invidious distinctions between basic research on the one hand and more applied work on the other that I think are actually belied in practice by the manner in which we do anthropology, the manner in which we do ethnography, because it is necessarily the case that the mode of understanding that we seek, the way in which we seek it, brings us into the world, brings us into concrete, transformative relations with the world, with those we encounter, relations that maintain that transformative quality, that transformative charge, not only 
in that fieldwork circumstance that we understand to be so productive and generative, but also in the writing that we do, in the reading that we do, in the teaching that we do. That is to say, if one takes seriously the idea that what one might be engaged in as an anthropologist is the cultivation of a humanity yet to come, which is an argument I make in this forthcoming book called A Possible Anthropology, rather than, in a sense, just a catalog of the forms of humanity that there are. Mm -hmm. And then when asked the question, how does that cultivation unfold, we have to take seriously the expressive force of what happens in our texts and in our classrooms and begin to kind of think about the transformative charge of the encounters with difference that we make possible in these different forms, which is how then one might come around to writing, certainly, but also other modes of encounter as well, whether it's cinema, whether it's uh, other forms of mediated exchange, whether it's this podcast that we're having, storytelling more generally, Mm -hmm. all the different expressive forms that one might take as sites in which what is unfolding is something like a transformative encounter with cultural resource from elsewhere that acts on the hearer, the reader, the listener, mm-hmm. as much as it is acting through the one who is sharing those things. So I think I've just come to a much more dynamic sense over time, as I've done a number of different anthropological projects, a much more dynamic sense of how it is that anthropology and ethnography act in the world Mm -hmm. and an interest in ways of intensifying those modes of action. Part of what seems key to me about that is this growing proliferation of forms. Right. Or I guess another way of saying that would be genres of anthropological production. Right. Uh, you mentioned the podcast, sure, that's that's definitely something I think about, or these kind of shorter essays that we're seeing, shorter series, experimental books. Because so comics. often... Comics. The experience has been something like what you were saying before. You go back to a field site, and the object of concern has changed because there's too much time in between, in that case, between setting up a project and going and doing it, but more often between going and doing the field work and then actually writing the idea of the academic monograph which is Mm. going to take several years and then by which time this is my experience I then take it back and and people have moved on things are articulated differently now and if I had been able not only through my own training but also through the kinds of things that the institution recognizes as work that might have been articulated differently that might have worked out differently because one can write something more, as you're saying, more charged or or that's of a different form that will engage with those energies more immediately. Rather Mm. than, yes, as you said, we go and do our field work and then we go back to our office and uh, and we we mull away in the laboratory. Right. And out out the other end eventually comes an ethnography. Right. Yeah, I... The laboratory mindset. Well, the process of working on this more recent book has actually been quite interesting because I've tried in various ways to trouble that distinction between the classic distinction that dates back to the beginnings of fieldwork, that classic distinction between the field and the armchair. That is to say, in the Malinovskian fieldwork tradition that we all inherit, there's a sort of foundational distinction between what used to happen in the armchair study and what will henceforth happen in the field. What I found in going back to that work and thinking about some of those moments a little more carefully is that in some ways the very distinction between field and study actually does break down if you can begin to understand how even something like the study that we're talking in now can really seriously be taken as a space of encounter. I had the chance to visit Levi Strauss's study as part of the research for this book and had a long conversation with his widow, Monique Levi Strauss. And in that part of this forthcoming manuscript, what I talk with her about, what I try to reconstruct is Levi Strauss's practice as a reader of myths. What we realize is that the practice of reading for Lévi-Strauss in that closeted study of his in this really nice part of Paris was in many really interesting ways a process that was itself akin to fieldwork. There was a geographical dimension Mm -hmm. to his moving among these texts 
It has certain precise analogies to how we might think about fieldwork as a site of encounter. So yes, absolutely. A lot of this project for me is about trying to upend that distinction or those set that set of distinctions between here and there, between the office and the field, between those we encounter and those with whom we share those encounters. Because ultimately, if we want to find a place for anthropology in a much more variegated and complexly integrated world, we have to be able to think across those lines that we've taken for granted for so long. I guess another aspect of that is that our interlocutors are not cut off from the world in the ways that they once were. They too are interacting with these scenes of enunciation. Absolutely. uh, As well, in ways that they couldn't previously. Absolutely. So on this theme of the future of anthropology, I'd like to talk a little bit about uh, the future of anthropological conferences. Uh, You were the chair of the 2018 uh, Society for Cultural Anthropology meeting. Uh, as somebody who who's convened a much smaller meeting, my, my sympathies. Uh, we, and, and, and it was an adventure. <laughs> thank you for your service, which I should tell I should tell our listeners. What was different about this was that it was a conference that's usually held with a bunch of people in a hotel or a conference center. However, this was purely done online, networking material spaces across an online platform. Where did this idea begin that you, yeah. you need to go online? And, and I guess what was driving yeah. um, the concerns of the society and, and, the, and the group who put together the conference, yeah. that this was the time to do? So there were a number of things that were on our mind. It was an intensely collaborative process, I have to say. And though in some ways I was nominally the organizer, we had a committee of about 25 folks who were ultimately working kind of day and night to make this possible, to make what possible, what we did with the biennial last year is to take something that would typically draw, say, 180 to 200 people, relatively small local event that would take place in one city in North America, and turn it into something that happened with more than 1,300 people scattered across 40 different countries around the world interacting with each other through a virtual platform where we had pre-recorded presentations, but also in literally dozens of nodes that took place around the world, most every continent, and most interestingly, many, many cities in the global south with the participation of people who could have never afforded to attend an anthropology conference in North America. People from Guatemala, in Lima, in Cartagena, in Dakar, in Tangier, in several cities in India, and on and on, in, in South Africa. It, it, it wound up being a distributed event that spanned many different time zones that was unfolding with a temporality that was sort of completely unique mm-hmm. given the fact that people were coming in and out of that space from many different places at once. Mm-hmm. The impetus, there were several things that we were thinking about that led us to try this out and have led us to try to continue to experiment with doing something like this for the Society for Contra Anthropology and hopefully to begin to encourage societies like the American Anthropological Association, hopefully others as well, to try to, to try something like this. One, we were thinking, as I suggested earlier, about simple access to the sharing of knowledge that is a conference, is it fair to expect people to spend thousands of dollars to arrive physically somewhere, to register, to spend the night in expensive hotels and major metropolitan centers for the chance to hear these talks when so many people are employed so precariously now in the discipline, when so many of our interlocutors and well-wishers Uh, in other countries can't afford to move around in the world that we do. Mm -hmm. Isn't it really elitist to expect everyone to converge somewhere? One. Two, the carbon costs of that mode of conferencing, we have come to learn that conferencing is actually one of the most significant carbon footprints for the academic vocation. How are we going to learn to think beyond that particular commitment and its costs that we tend to take for granted? And three, what about the weirdness of sharing anthropology in a corporate 
conference center. We've all had the experience, the really unsettling experience again and again of arriving in some cavernous hotel ballroom with garish carpets, chandeliers up above, a vast sort of space of hundreds or dozens of seats, most of which are empty, and sort of letting these stories out into the emptiness, Mm -hmm. wondering who they'll reach. Could something that was actually distributed in some ways paradoxically be more immersive rather than less immersive than the really alienating experience of the corporate conference center model Mm -hmm. of doing anthropological knowledge dissemination. Those are some of the motivations that prompted this particular effort. It was the first time, I think, something like this had been tried, at least at this scale, Mm -hmm. in anthropology. But we really hope that others will try this as well, and that over time we'll begin to figure out other ways of conversing and conferencing with each other that are more attentive to some of the dimensions that I've been talking about. What were some of the kind of key things that you learned about doing this kind of thing? If you would do it again, like, yeah. or you're advising somebody on doing this kind yeah. of a, a distributed yeah. online conference? I have a long write-up. Okay. It's yeah. a long write-up, a long distillation of the process that we went through, the mm-hmm. choices that we had to make all the trial by fire moments that we went through and floating this thing and some of the key lessons that we digested mm. through this process that one can access through the SCA website. It was a pretty profound learning experience. It was a difficult learning experience. As late as hour two of the actual conference, we were quite worried that the whole system might come crashing down, which it didn't. There was a lot that we had to figure out as we went along that kept happening through those actual days of the conference itself. But once the dust had settled a bit, and once we could kind of think back on what we had done, once we began to tally up the numbers, once we learned that there are actually 1,300 people who got involved, we did realize, I think, some important things. We realized that, on the one hand, it is possible through a distributed medium to conjure up a sense of liveliness, liveness, a sense of immediacy, even if people are spread far apart even if they're not necessarily engaging directly with each other. There are ways to use social media, the simultaneity that certain forms of social media, like Twitter and so on, give you a sense of, to give participants the sense of being co-present with others in the same experience, even if they're many, many miles apart. That was one interesting lesson. Mm. On the other hand, we also did learn, quite seriously and importantly, that distraction is a real possibility when people are spread out in this manner. Mm. A lot of people reported the challenge of focusing on something that they could, in a sense, sort of keep on the background. So how does one build in uh, a more attentive mode of engagement to something that it's up to you to foster as opposed to the property of the environment that you're in because Mm. everyone else is attending in that way? Right? There are people doing laundry while they were taking in the conference. There are people looking after their kids. There are people catching up on emails. So how do we negotiate these writing their own papers. Writing their own papers, right? Which happens anyway with conferences. That was also, I think that was an interesting lesson. We realized that the nodes that we organized were much more important than we thought they'd be. We had the sense, we weren't sure how many people would actually gather in these different parts, these different local nodes. Uh, to to take in the conference together, what we ultimately realized is that half of the participants, half of the people who took in the conference, took in the conference not as individually registered participants, but instead as attendees at a local node. Mm-hmm. So something that we thought of at the outset as a virtual conference, as something that happened through a virtual platform, we realized only after its execution was instead a hybrid conference, a hybrid mm. combination of virtual engagement plus local engagement. So what we wound up with is not a virtual conference, but a distributed conference. So that's what we're calling it now. That's yeah. what we're saying that we did. Because one of the big objections that 
I've encountered for doing this kind of thing is one that uh, these conferences are important for income streams for professional societies. Right. And two, that if you have a virtual conference, it will miss the thing that people are really there for, which is to socialize with exactly. other people in their field. Exactly. Whereas it sounds like you overcame some of that. And it was an experiment. We already have other ideas. We're talking about doing something along these lines again. And if we did, there are other things we would do that would give, I think, a better semblance of that. Mm -hmm. I think we would like, for example, to try to have people present live on a video feed after their presentation is screened on a live stream as a way of giving some sense of a, of a more immediate give and take. Mm -hmm. We might think about better conversational platforms that would allow forms of interaction with a greater sense of immediacy than the discussion boards that we'd used before. We might think of how to build these local forms of face-to-face -face engagement with a greater degree of prominence and a greater degree of advanced planning so that that's understood to be integral to the experience as much as possible. Uh, so that people at least have some sense of taking this in together. Those who took these presentations in together, I think, often had a much richer conference experience than those who were completely on their own. I guess the question is, if one is interested in the social dimension of conferencing, does that social dimension have to require traveling halfway around the world or halfway around the country or are there other ways that one might travel on a more local and more restricted basis that would ease the carbon footprint on the one hand but still build in the possibility for serendipitous encounters with others that you don't know that we all do take quite seriously and expect from the conference experience well on these beautiful thoughts of a collegiality to come Anand, thank you very much for your time today it's been a pleasure talking to you. It's been lovely to talk to you. Thank you so much for your questions. Thank you for joining us for another conversation in anthropology at Deakin. Today we've had two conversations for you. The first with Rosalind Fredericks, who is Associate Professor of Geography and Development Studies at New York University. And the second with Anand Pandian, an Associate Professor of Anthropology at Johns Hopkins University. If you'd like to learn more about their work, you can find them both online via your favourite search engine. Conversations in Anthropology at Deakin is produced by me, David Giles, and Timothy Neal, with editorial and logistical support from Lockie McKenzie. We are also brought to you with support from the Faculty of Arts and Education at Deakin University and in association with the American Anthropological Association. If you'd like to get in touch with us about the show, you can find us on Twitter. I'm at Giles, and Tim is at TDNeal. And if you enjoyed this episode, think about giving us a review on iTunes or elsewhere. 